God, we are desperate creatures. So many of us, Lord, have created the circumstances that we're in, but Lord, we all live in a sinful world. And so, Lord, we just ask that we would be real with you this morning. God, that we would be able to be honest with you about the status of our lives, the status of our hearts. And God, there's so much going on right now. There's so much going on in the world. There's so much going on politically in our country. There's so much going on in our families' lives. There's so much going on at this time of year. And it's so hard to find quiet, to find peace. But Jesus, you're the Prince of Peace. God, you are the God of all comfort. And so we can rest here in your presence and we can trust. We can learn how to build our faith. And Lord, if there is unbelief here in this room this morning or any any set of ears that is listening to what's being said, Lord, I pray that we would all be able to settle ourselves enough to rest in the finished work, Jesus, that you accomplished on the cross. Allow us to see your word, Lord. Allow us to gain our hope and our our joy from who you are and what you've done. Take our eyes off circumstances. Remove the noise from our minds. Create in us a new heart. Renew a right spirit within us right here this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from Isaiah 40, reading verse 18 and then verses 21 through 23. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? Looking at verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. Uh, Being able to look up and see the God that's made us and to understand his power, his sovereignty, it's important because we have to recognize that God started by creating. In the beginning, God created. And it's important for us to remember this on a regular basis. He created with full knowledge of the outcome. If you could see the outcome of something like creation, would you have still done it? It's interesting because we think about this in in a finite sort of way. But if we had actually thought about this in our own minds and thought about with foreknowledge of what would happen, would we still have done uh, what we did? The human beings would rise from the dust and bone at his command and that we would fall to temptation of our pride. Would we still have gone through with what we set out to do, knowing that that kind of failure was imminent? The first breach of relationship between humans and God was a decision that was made by pride. And indeed, it was well said by C.S. Lewis that as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. He said a proud man is always looking down on thing and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Looking up, reveals a standard. It reveals to us that the breach was deep. That this break in relationship between us and God was cataclysmic for our souls. 
It was our doom, in fact, and our only hope was to, it was going to come from above. Our only hope had to come from the same direction that our creation came from. And there was nothing beneath that could save us. And so, from above our salvation came, and we were able to behold him by looking down into a manger. The fullness of the glory of God was revealed in the manger. And that's how we beheld his glory. You see, a lot of times when we look up, we find out it's important that we do so before we look down because when we know and believe where our Savior came from and when we understand and believe who our Savior is, we have to do what the song says that we sing this time of year. We have to let every heart prepare him room. We have to make room for God and not just room, the central location of our hearts, the absolute surrender of our hearts to him. But temptation in regards to pride, it plagues us this time of year, doesn't it? When it comes to pride, it's plaguing us this time of year. Why? Because every little thing is fighting for the allegiance of your heart when it comes to a holiday such as Christmas time. There's so many distractions. And, And it's not just Christmas time, but I think we see it in a really full way this time of year. There's so much busyness. You realize that busyness a lot of times is just fighting for your heart's allegiance over God. It's keeping you busy so that you're not spending time with him. How many times do people get stressed out? I don't know about you guys, but when you go shopping, there's not a whole lot of grace getting thrown around Walmart these days, right? This time of year. There's not a lot of grace being thrown around on the streets right now as you're driving, is there? There's a lot of hurry. There's a lot of fret. There's a lot of worry. Why? Because so many people are just resting in the Lord. (laughs) No. It's the opposite, right? You see, our pride starts to rear up. We're thinking so much of our schedules, our plans, our celebrations, the get-togethers. You know, or maybe there's something really big coming. Maybe there's a huge thing that you're about to embark on. Maybe this next year is going to hold something totally different for you, and it's consuming your mind and destroying your rest and destroying your peace. We get so full of these concerns, so full of these things that are going on that the manger, that we're supposed to stop at this time of year and consider the child that lay there, it becomes a subplot, if even that. It becomes something that's not even secondary. It's way down the list. It's not even on our top five of what we're thinking about. What should the manger be? We should be remembering when we think about the manger, when we think about what Jesus did when he came as a child, that it was the fruition of the Old Testament that was born in Bethlehem. It was everything that was promised come to fruition in a child, in a manger. It was the validation of everything God had declared, proving his faithfulness and vindicating the message of the prophets. He did all of that through Jesus, through Jesus in the manger. And so, how do we approach that? How do, and this is what's great. This is why I'm so excited to share this with you guys this morning, because it's not Christmas Eve. I'm super excited to share this with you guys, and it not be Christmas Eve, because on Christmas Eve, how many of us actually have a sound, especially parents, have a sound mind the minute you leave here? You know, I have Christmas Eve service, it's like, Christmas Eve, 
let the mayhem begin. You know, and it's like you, you hear the message and you're like, oh, you know, yes, we worshiped. It was such a great time. And we're going to do that this year. But this is a golden opportunity to have a Sunday a couple days before and to think about this and go, let this just marinate in your heart for a couple days. Let this sit in your heart and dwell on Jesus. Think about this. And so in order for us to do that, I just want to give you guys some, some ways to prepare, some ways to prepare your hearts for this time of year. And I know it's, you know, maybe we could have done this earlier that, you know, I've been doing a lot of Advent reading this year, but let's just take the next couple days and let's think about this, okay, as a church. The best place to start in order for us to approach the manger and to think about Jesus and what he's done is by imitating who was laying there. It's by imitating the one who was laid there. And so we're going to talk about meekness this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Would you turn there with me? We're going to read one verse. Sermon on the Mount. This is the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. We're going to look at this and a couple other texts and just consider our best route to coming before Jesus this time of year and really considering what we celebrate. Matthew 5, 5 says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I could spend an entire study just breaking those words down and talking about how powerful of a statement that is, but we want to direct this towards Jesus being born into this world as a child, as a baby, infant, and being laid in a manger, which is an animal feeding trough. When we're talking about meekness, the synonyms are, are, are gentle, um, humble, considerate, courteous. Essentially, you're talking about a lowliness, but we could actually take it all the way to say a lowliness of heart even. Not even a lowliness of position, but a lowliness of heart. In fact, the word for meek or humble in Matthew 5, 5, depending on your translation, it's either translated humble, it's translated meek. It's the same word, same Greek word. It's praus, and it's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, when he says this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take up my yoke, and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble, praus humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What's interesting is it, 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 a lot of people, I think, struggle with thinking about the meekness of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. We, you know, we think of Jesus, and we think about how he did go to the cross. He died there for our sin. But to think of him as being someone who was lowly of heart, it makes him feel weak to us. And that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point because in everything that Jesus did, he set for us a standard. He set for us an example. And so if we're going to look at Jesus and model our lives after him, he shows us, if I was willing to do this, what should you do? If I was this lowly in heart, if I was this humble, if I was this meek, how lowly should you be? Because Paul talks about it in Philippians 2. He's like, he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped or held onto. He let it go. He humbled himself so far down, Paul said, even to death on the cross. And to people that understood Greek and Roman culture, that was a big deal. Death on a cross was the most shameful, humiliating thing somebody could go through. And Jesus let himself go all the way that far down to show us how much he loves us, how much the Father loves us, and the kind of life that we should live. As we should expect, Jesus doesn't tell us to be something that he himself 
doesn't give us an example of. That's one of the most powerful things that I think we forget about our Lord is that he never asks us to do something that he did not do himself. He understands our struggles, as the writer of Hebrews says, in every way, yet without sin. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. God sent the Son to be the Savior for us, but but we so often forget that he struggled just like we did in this life and did it without sin. That's why we put our hope in him. That's why we trust him. That's why we love him. That's why we seek after him, because he was the one who lived life the way it should have been. If Christ was considered meek, we should seek a way to be beneath. If Jesus was considered meek and humble, we should find a way to be below that. We should be looking for a way. You're like, I don't know if I can find a way. Search. Look for it. Earnestly look for it. If Jesus was willing to do this, what am I willing to do as his servant, as his follower? We're so entitled. We think ourselves so much. And yet, if Jesus was willing to do that, my aim is to be at his feet and nowhere above him. Meekness denotes a humble and gentle attitude towards others, which is determined by a true estimate of ourselves. You want to know how you find meekness and humility? Understanding who you are. Understanding who you are. And not what culture tells you you are. Who God says you are. Who God says we are. It's much more than our internal understanding as well and attitude. It's how we treat others. It reveals itself in how we treat others. If you want to know if somebody's meek, you simply watch how they treat other people how they love other people, how they serve other people. That's where meekness is found. Martin Lloyd-Jones noted on meekness that it's comparatively easy to be honest with ourselves before God and acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in his sight. And then he goes on to say this, but how much more difficult is it to allow other people to say things like that about me? I instinctively resent it. We all of us prefer to condemn ourselves than to allow somebody else to condemn us. You want to know how meek you are? This is... This has kicked my rear end for the last two months. The true revelation of meekness is how we react when people say bad things about us, when people speak ill of us. Because if I react with pride, it reveals my lack of humility. How easy is it for us to admit that we're sinners individually when we come to a time of confession? If I'm there in the prayer closet with the Lord, oh man, it's easy to be humble before the Lord, right? You're sitting with the Lord, you're like, oh, just I'm terrible so glad you love me, and I can't believe I said that, and then I did this thing over there, you know, and, and it's easy to pour out and be, be right with God there, but someone goes, you know what, you run your mouth an awful lot, and be like, hey, you know what, you know, like, that's my first reaction, and furthermore, you know, or when, you know, you're driving, what is it about being a Christian and driving that just don't go together, I mean, like, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've been given very unkind symbols from someone who had a fish on their car, you know, like, I, it's, there's just, those aren't as, as prolific as they used to be, but like, you know, we, what is it about us that we can, we can be humble when we choose be, to, to sit before the Lord just one-on-one with him, but let somebody else tell us our faults? Oh, that's a real check of humility, isn't it? That's a big time, big time check. 
I don't believe that within our own hearts between us and the Lord, it's really that difficult to be lowly. One of my favorite teachers, John Stott, spoke on this. He said, let somebody else come up to me after church and call me a miserable sinner, and I want to punch him in the nose. It's like, boy, Stott. Way to be real. And he was totally, like, convicted by it. He's like, that's the wrong attitude. That's the wrong heart. But I remember studying a lot of Stott's books when I was reading in, in Bible college, and, and it was funny how honest he would be about stuff like that. It's stuff that we feel. You know, you're like, it's not Christian to want to hit him right now, but I really want to. You know, like, we understand that, but we have to call it what it is. It isn't just you having a bad day. It's not just whatever you ate the night before, and it's not just, you know, a mood you're in. It's lack of humility. It's lack of meekness. It's not being Christ-like. And you guys, we're in this together. We're absolutely in this together. I speak on no false pretense of piety here. Like, there's, there's no... There's no ground that I'm standing on to claim like I'm not doing this. It's, it's me too. So what's the difference if what they're saying is right? What's the difference if what people are saying is right, is true? I'm willing to admit something to God, but when confronted with the same truth by a person, I'm enraged. When this is the case for us, church, meekness is absent. And we have to direct our hearts back to the Lord. We have to remember Jesus. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. Notice it connects to other people. Meekness will always connect to other people. The person who's truly meek is the one who's truly amazed that God and people can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. When was the last time you sat back and thought it was just a blessing that people actually treat you as well as they do? Reverse question. When was the last time you thought about how people always treat you terribly? Which one dominates? There's your meekness meter. Don't you wish we had a meekness meter? (laughs) I just made that up. I wish I had one. I wouldn't want it up here. You know, but like, it, it just, just like, you know, like a little device that I carry around is like, ooh, <laughs> like, your meekness level is at 0%. Guys, this makes, when we think about how amazing it is that God and people can actually think of well, as well of us as they do, do you know what this does? It makes us gentle, humble, sensitive, and patient when we deal with others. When we think about how we don't deserve anything, but we have all that we have, it immediately humbles us. It makes us realize that we are blessed people to have what we have, to have the people in our lives that we have in our lives, and to be thankful for these things. And all those good things, those fruit of the Spirit, start flowing out of us when our heart is down where it belongs. Not lifted up in pride, but down low. Lowly of heart, just as Jesus taught us to. Are we amazed that God can think of us as well as he does? And here's the real question, church. Are we disarmed by that? Do you let God regularly disarm you? We're really good at strapping our weapons on, aren't we? Putting our shielding up. It's funny, you're like, I was told in Ephesians chapter 6 to wear the full armor of God. So I armor up. Nothing gets through. What about God? You're supposed to be wearing him. You're supposed to be putting him on. That attaches him to you. That means that that he is your defense. But how often is that armor that we put on a sham and it's actually protecting us from God getting through to us? 
How many of you try, and, 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 and I've, I've suffered from this as well, you guys. When, when we read the Bible, we're trying to equip ourselves with some kind of weaponry. Is it true that it's to fight in a spiritual battle? Yes. But how many times are we equipping ourselves to fight against fellow believers? I'm actually loading up here so I can fight. You know, I was watching Lord of the Rings with my kids recently, and I was just watching, like, you know, all these guys handing over all their weapons at, you know, the gate of Rohan. You know, they're like, you know, you can't come before the king so armed. They're just handing all these things. You know, they're just loaded down with all these weapons. It's like, what do I weapon up for? What do I, what do I arm myself for? Am I arming myself to actually fight the good fight of faith or to protect myself from being changed? To stop even God himself from changing who I am. We need to think about the amazing grace that God has given us, and we need to be disarmed by him. Armor up in him, but disarmed by God. Presenting ourselves to God, saying, here I am completely open and unashamed before you. I need you to do in me what is necessary. The best thing we can do is to be disarmed by the Lord. Do we let this remembrance of his goodness, of his meekness, of his humility strip away our pride and leave our hearts exposed, leaving us soft, moldable, in awe and in reverence? If we can do this together, if we can agree that we ought to be lowly in heart like Jesus, and we can let that pride just fall off to the side because he has already paid the price for that sin. We let that fall away to the side. Do you know what we can do? We can approach the manger low. We can approach the manger where the Savior lay low, lowly in heart, humble, and submitted. And so we approach the manger in meekness. And we need to understand the importance of meekness to be able to appropriately get there. And the heart that's prideful cannot receive a humble Savior. A heart that is prideful cannot receive a humble Savior. That pride has to be gone. What does it look like to have a heart that's low like this? If you want to turn there with me, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we'll, we'll read verses 27 through 30. And the setting of this is John the Baptist, who is always a good, a good example to look at in the New Testament for having an attitude of humility. Because John didn't come and fulfill his calling by making a name for himself. John came as the forerunner. He was clearing the path for Jesus. John was clearing the road for Christ. And so as you think about this, John the Baptist had observed the crowds flocking to Jesus, and his disciples had noticed it too. And so they came to John the Baptist, and they're like, dude, everyone's following him now. A very human thing to think, right? A very humanly normal thing to think, you know, especially as a pastor. Everyone's following him now. You know, like, what, what's going on? What's, you know, the, and here's the thing. That starts to become like, John, doesn't that bother you? Doesn't, doesn't this crowd validate you? Doesn't this validate who you are? Think about this. John says this in John 3, 27 through 30. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
you know, oftentimes we read that, that last verse. We read verse 30 and we're like, oh yeah, he must increase, but I must decrease. Do you realize that John the Baptist said that as it was happening? He said it in the moment as it was happening, as, th- as these people are flocking to Jesus. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is what I'm excited about. This is what I came for. He says, this joy of mine is complete now because I have paved the way and they are following the one that I paved it for. You see, I was just here to clear the road. Now they're with the one who can take them on. I did what I came to do. Consider this with me. Is our joy completed when people follow Jesus, even if it takes them away from us? Is my joy complete even when people follow after Jesus and he's taking them in a different direction than where I am? Will I rejoice in that? Because if I don't, I've said it a bunch, I'll say it again. Lack of meekness. Lack of humility. Lack of perspective. It's not away from us, and this is the understanding that we have to have. When people go a different direction, it's not an away from us that takes them from being our brother and sister. They're our brother and sister in Christ. But I have to be okay with where God is taking them. When I'm not, what do we call that? Starts with a pride. <laughs> right? Think about it. You guys, that, if I don't like where God's taking somebody, that's pride. That's me saying I know better. I don't like what he's doing. That's his call. It's not mine. I am supposed to rejoice at what God is doing. I'm supposed to be filled with the joy of the Lord as he works. He's not taking them away from me as my brother and sister. He's taking them on to what he's called them to do. Does that complete our joy? Is it our joy that we decrease and Jesus increases? Does that bring me joy? That the name of Christ goes on? Because I tell you, this, gets, this water gets murky even in ministry. You know, what should a pastor rejoice in the most? When people follow Jesus. That's where he should be rejoicing. Paul's greatest source of joy was when people followed the Lord. That, he was just like, it's so great, they're doing so good. He was so excited. Obviously, the Lord's joy was, it was his hope and his, his satisfaction, but when he saw what God was doing in people's lives, in this life, people were his greatest source of joy. What was Paul's greatest source of pain? People. There's a struggle there. There's a realistic struggle there because the same source of our greatest joy in this life can also be our greatest source of pain. When we deal with people, anyone who knows people, which everyone in this room knows people, I don't know if you know that, we all struggle with this. We all struggle with this. It's a hard thing to do. But do you know how you can love people even if they don't love you? And do you know how you can actually rejoice when people go and do what God's calling them to do? And and how you can be fervent in prayer for those who are not? It's called meekness. It's called humility. It's called recognizing who Jesus became for us and getting lower if there's meekness and a humble heart our joy will increase as we watch jesus draw people to himself no matter if that's near or far from us our joy will increase we will rejoice in that jesus came into this world to save sinners jesus came into this world to save sinners. And I mentioned this before, it was like that that martyr from the 16th century said, Thomas Bilney, he said it was like the dawn breaking on a dark night. When I realized that Jesus came to save sinners, it was like the sun came up. 
on a December day. You know, we get like two of these every 10 years. But like, I, you know, it, it's such a cool thing. It's this, this realization of like an overwhelming sense that that's why he came. He came for me. He didn't come to condemn the world, John three seventeen. He came that we might be saved. He came that sinners might be saved. That's why Jesus was lying in the manger with a heart that's lowly and grateful that God loves us so much as that he would take, uh, uh, he'd take action and that he would come to us. All that we need is lying in that manger. All that we need. We will become everything that we were meant to be when we approach him with the right heart. It may not be what you want, but it will be what you need. And through prayer and submission to God, it'll become what you desire. It'll become what you desire when you submit to him in obedience. One final thought as we close. The second Advent is approaching. You know, Advent, if you want to literally translate, it means coming. Call it arrival, but it means the coming. And we celebrate Advent uh, this time of year because it was the coming of our Savior as the child. There is another one. It's the same one, but there's another coming. There's a second coming coming, right? It's approaching us, church, as we celebrate Christmas this year. I think it would be a great disservice not to remember that. Not to remember that we celebrate what has happened and we anticipate what's coming. You see, before Jesus came, they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. We have seen it. We have beheld him. We've seen his glory. And now we await the return of the king. I don't know if you guys get excited about that, but we should. We should be on the edge of our seats ready for the king to return again, waiting for the second advent. We observe the first, but we anticipate the second. The waiting is difficult, isn't it? Patience has never been a human strong suit. You know, some, you know there, I've known some people that are way more patient than I am, but I still think their patience pales in comparison to God. You know, and that's, that's an obvious statement, but when you think about it, how patient has God been? How long has he waited? And you're looking to go, why would you wait any longer? Because he's not you, and he's not me. Because he loves people. And he's giving every opportunity. But how often do we see this time run out when it came to the nation of Israel? We had these examples of the Old Testament of like, okay, last warning, right? This is it. You're, it's going to happen. It's coming. It's going to be dealt with. And we're waiting for Jesus to come back for that moment the fruition, the completion. I think our hearts and our lips should echo Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Right now. Come right now. It just gives me the chills thinking about it. You know, like if he was just to come in this very moment. You know, some people, well, there's a few things I want to do for it. There is nothing I need to do. I don't need to go to the bathroom. I don't need to do anything. Just like if so, whatever happens, happens. Like just now, you know, like I want Jesus to come right now. Dad, what about Christmas? Forget Christmas, kids. Right? All the kids, <gasps> you know, like guys, we're about to have the best Christmas ever. <laughs> you know, like eternity. I want him now. I want him to come now. I want to be with the Lord. 
But with that longing, we have to wait. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. He was talking about waiting to be free of prison because he was imprisoned at that time by the Germans during World War II. He would die before they could release him, before the war ended. But Bonhoeffer was recognizing that in prison, but he was also talking about Christmas at that time. And he said, the door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. In other words, we await the return of the Lord as those who are here in sin. We're not slaves to sin, but we're here in the sinful body. We're still dealing with this flesh. He goes, but we await for something to be open that can only be opened from the other side. We can't open that door. And so we wait patiently. Meekness and humility will help us with that. When we are low, embracing who we are, not in control, but waiting upon the Lord and desiring to reflect the Savior, we find in the manger, we have to ask the following and believe the answer. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger, whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high, Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. Indeed, if God was laid in a manger, how much deeper should we bow? Let's pray together, church. Lord, thank you for your humility. And Lord, I confess my pride to you. There are so many times I think more highly of myself than I ought to. There are so many times where I don't have, Lord, a right attitude um, before you. And God, I just pray that you would convict us. But Lord, we know that when you convict us of being prideful, Lord, you came to save us from this sin. That's why you came. And so, Lord, there's no condemnation. There's nothing that's beating us down. What you offer is hope. What you offer is renewal. And so, Jesus, renew us this morning. Strengthen us. Lord, I pray that we would take the next couple days and think about meekness. That we would try to imagine what it would be like to see God in human flesh in a manger requiring the care of his creation You lowered yourself so far down that you needed to be cared for by us. Lord, I don't know how I get low enough to be below you, Lord, in that manger. You lowered yourself so far down. Teach us how to be humble. Teach us how to be meek. Church, just take a moment. Let the Lord speak to your heart.